event and what the Holy Spirit began to do there. So let's read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now before, before we start to talk about the most obvious, for a, obvious subject for a day like today, the work of the Holy Spirit, I want to spend some time talking about the day itself, its history and meaning. Now to begin with, we might think that Pentecost belongs only to us Christians, that it's a, a new covenant thing entirely. And I guess if you measure only by that particular work of the Holy Spirit, it is, but it isn't at all ours as far as the Jews are concerned. They've owned it literally for thousands of years as the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot in Hebrew. For collectors of useless information, Shavuot is the plural of a word meaning week or seven, and you'll see why that's important in a moment. So where did the name Pentecost come from? Well, the pentabit should be a clue because whenever you see that, you'll always know that the number five is involved since penta is Greek for five. Okay, And that's true here. The feast took place on the 50th day after Passover, and so Hellenic Jews gave it the name Pentecost, meaning 50th. For the Jews, Shavuot is doubly significant. Firstly, agriculturally, it marks the all-important wheat harvest in the land of Israel. And spiritually, it commemorates the anniversary of the day when God gave the Torah to the nation of Israel assembled at Mount Sinai. And its date is directly linked to that of the Passover. So beginning on the second day of Passover, as commanded by the Torah, a counting of 49 days or seven weeks begins. And it ends appropriately with the festival of weeks. And this ritual counting of days represents spiritual preparation and anticipation for the giving of the Torah and thus demonstrates how much a Jew desires to accept the instruction of the Torah in their own life. And in ancient times, the same period also marked out the time of the grain harvest, beginning with the barley during Passover and ending with the wheat at Shavuot. Now, this stuff isn't all just interesting historical fact. There are really some amazing connections between significant Old Covenant events and significant New Covenant events. Passover, for example, was important to the Jews as a reminder of how God had saved them from Egypt. The blood of a lamb was shed there to save them. And what happened at Passover? Well, Jesus died at Passover. His blood was shed to save us, and he is identified as the Lamb of God by the Apostle John. Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Although God lives outside time and is absolutely his master, he still uses it to link significant dates and actions. But he didn't only do it once. Here it is again at Pentecost. Shaviot marks the giving of the Torah or the law, and the purpose of the law was to define God's people as a nation set apart, and to provide a way for them to have union with him. It was not meant to confine, but to release. 
Those who obeyed it would enjoy peace with God forever. But, however, as we all know, that didn't work out too well because of the weakness of human flesh, and so something better had to come along and replace it. And that something better came in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth as a man and dying on the cross to bear the penalty for our sin. So technically, the law was finished when Jesus died, and the new covenant era began at that moment. So that creates a little problem for me. If I want to show that there's a parallel here between the timing of the Passover and death of Jesus' moment, and then to the giving of the law and the end of the law is the only way to have union with God at Pentecost, then I'm wrong because there's this problem of a seven-week gap between the cross and Pentecost. So the thing that I'm claiming that happened here in Acts had really happened seven weeks before on the cross. But I think there's an important way that they're different. If you read the Pentecost account in Acts 2, you'll note that it's very public. At that time, Jerusalem was absolutely heaving with God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, as it says in verse 5. And they weren't there by chance. They, they were there deliberately to celebrate Shavuot. They had made what had to have been a long and arduous journey to be there. And so the day has come. They're enjoying this feast. And then they hear this, this huge and unusual sound. And it must have been, it really must have been amazing. You know, like these earthquakes that we've just been through? They hear the noise of a violent wind coming from heaven. And so they leap up. What's going on? There's a great hubbub and they, they rush to see what's going on. <laughs> wow. There are all these people speaking their home language. What on earth is going on here? Must be party central, central with Captain Al K. Hole in charge. That's the most obvious explanation for sure. But the Apostle Peter stands up and he addresses them. No, you're wrong about that. It's way too early in the morning for drunkenness. This is way more important. What you're seeing here is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people. And why is that moment here? The moment when the old covenant work of the Holy Spirit ends and his new covenant work begins in the most spectacular way? Well, it's here because of Jesus. Remember him? Remember him, the guy you put to death for nothing? Well, he was actually the Messiah. <laughs> and you all missed it. It must have been quite a persuasive speech because Scripture records that about 3,000 people were saved that day. That's a pretty fair old multiplier, isn't it? 120 to 3,000 in just a few hours. And that's a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And it reminds us that although there is certainly personal benefit from having him in our hearts, his purpose is much larger. Because he is in us, we are able to go to all nations. And we must go to all nations in the name of Jesus and make disciples of them. So my point is that while it is true that the curse of the law ended at the very moment Jesus died on the cross, 
Most people who saw that and heard about it just didn't understand what had really happened. No, it needed a Harvey Norman grand opening sales with balloons and streamers and annoying man with a, with a megaphone to launch the brand. And that's what we see at Pentecost. The law was given to the crowd at Mount, Mount Sinai and then it was replaced by a new and better way to the crowd at Pentecost. You see the connection now? But wait, there's more. So far we've only spoken about the spiritual significance of Shaviot. Remember, it also had an agricultural importance too. It was the first day that Jews could bring their first fruits to the temple in Jerusalem, a ceremony known as Bikurim. And these first fruits were brought from the seven species for which Israel is praised. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, pomegranates olives and dates. And the way that they'd figure out the first fruits thing was when they saw the first ripenings from each of these species in their fields, they'd go and they'd tie a reed around them so that they knew what was what when they were all, they were all ripe. And at the time of the harvest, those that were tied up by the reed, well, they'd be cut and they'd be placed in baskets woven of gold and silver. And the baskets would then be loaded on an oxen whose horns were gilded and laced with flowers and all kinds of stuff, and then they were led off in a grand um, ceremony to Jerusalem. It was a time of great gladness and rejoicing as the farmer and, and his entourage passed through cities and towns. They'd be accompanied by music and parades. Imagine. And then at the temple in Jerusalem, each farmer would present his bikurim to a priest in a spe special ceremony that followed the text of Deuteronomy 26, 1 to 10 which retells the history of the Jewish people as they went into exile in ancient Egypt and were enslaved and oppressed. And of course, God redeemed them and brought them to the land of Israel. So why all this great palaver? Well, the ceremony of Bikurim conveys gratitude to God both for the first fruits of the field and for his guidance throughout Jewish history. So how is that connected to Pentecost today? Well, if we look um, into Romans, the book of Romans 8, we see this starting in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's our parallel there. There's that word, first fruits. The Holy Spirit is the first fruits of God's blessing. Now Jewish farmers understood the blooming of their first fruits as an indication of the rich harvest to come. Which of course, in the end, boils down to a reassurance of security in times to come. Here are my first fruits. My family will have food and I can sell some of this to have money for other things. Praise God. And isn't the Holy Spirit the same? Isn't he, in the most glorious way at all possible, a promise of the security that God has in store for those who love him? And there's also that second part to the significance of the Bikurim, thankfulness for God's guidance. The Holy Spirit continues that blessing in a more intimate way by guiding our hearts and minds, not from outside through the words of prophets, but from inside, inside our heart. And where did he start to do that? Pentecost. 
Now this raises a question for me. Why do you think that God makes these time connections? I mean, there are 364 other perfectly serviceable days that the Lord could choose from. So why do it this way, on this day? Well, I only have an idea. It would be wrong for me to speak for God because He doesn't ever spell those motives out on this issue for us in Scripture, but I believe it has to be this way because of who He is. Firstly, God doesn't make mistakes. If He chose a radically different way to deal with the sinful consequences of humans' freedom of choice, for example, like creating a race of aliens and then punishing them on our behalf, it would mean that he had made a mistake. He made a mistake when he did things the first time around. And just in case you're confused in any way, he doesn't do that. He never, ever makes mistakes. So he uses the same methods and means and days because they were right in the first place. If things turn to custard afterwards, well, it was because of our human choices, not God's error of judgment. Secondly, God is always consistent. He doesn't think or do or say things differently from moment to moment. If he says, this is how it is, then that's how it is. If blood had to be shed to atone for sins 4,000 years ago, then it had to be the same 2,000 years ago on the cross as well. Now, I like these parts of God's character a great deal. In fact, I rely on them heavily because they firmly hold fast the promises that he makes. A God who makes mistakes and changes their mind, well, they just can't make worthwhile promises. They can't actually promise anything. In fact, they would be very scary indeed because terrible things could happen to me just because they pressed the wrong button on a whim upstairs. And that wouldn't be fair at all by my thinking. But we don't have to be afraid like that because our sovereign Lord in heaven is never like that. He is always consistent and always chooses the right path for his creation. Now when I got to this point in my sermon preparation, I thought that it was about time now to speak more specifically about those first fruits. What the Holy Spirit actually does in the life of a believer after all, how can we talk about the Holy Spirit and ignore those on this particular day? But it very quickly became obvious that this was going to be a big problem. Huge. I started to try to create a summary of all the Holy Spirit does that would fit comfortably into a reasonable length of sermon. But it only took a few minutes, in fact, before I realized this was going to be impossible. The fact of the matter is there is literally no place or time, or person, where we cannot find evidence of his presence and action. And there are literally hundreds of proof texts, and each one illustrates something meaningful and wonderful. <laughs> so where do I even start? Well, I guess it just has to be with a very, very broad summary. Firstly, the Holy Spirit empowers everything. Literally, he gives all living things, their lives. Secondly, he purifies all that is set aside for God. He helps every believer to grow in holiness throughout their lives. Thirdly, he re reveals the things of God both through Scripture 
and by directly acting on people's hearts and lives. And lastly, fourthly, he unifies. He holds the church together, equips its saints with gifts to edify the whole, and through the combination of his other actions in their lives, gives it common direction and purpose. Truly, if I spoke to you on this subject for an hour, every Sunday for years on end, I would not properly cover the work and person of the Holy Spirit. So I stopped here with this very broad description that you've just heard. I just can't do it full justice for the time we have today. Well, of course, that means what can I do with the rest of my two hours? It is two hours, isn't it? Good. But we can ask this question. What does this enormity of character mean for us in real life? In order to give some structure to the answer, why not go back to this brief summary of the Holy Spirit's abilities that I've just given you? But, but before I do that, I want to make a confession. I'm very grateful to Wayne Grudem's wisdom in his book on systematic theology for that summary and for a lot of the material that I'm going to talk about now because well, I just wasn't clever enough to pull it all together in the time that I had. So let's go there. If it is true that the Spirit empowers, we cannot say that we are too weak for His purposes. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. Now the Greek word here for power is dunamis, from which we derive modern words like dynamic and dynamite. And so we can't ever imagine then that we are only getting 12 volts of power when the full 220 is required. If it is true that the Spirit purifies, we can never say that it is impossible to gain ground. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I know from my own experience, it might be really difficult a lot of the time to see any forward movement from our own perspective. But we have the Holy Spirit, and He is both faithful and able. He will work to bring out those fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's only when we look back often that we can see these blessings and how they have changed in our lives and grown. Or maybe we hear what others have seen in us. And then we realize how far we have actually come. And that this is truth. If it is true that the Spirit reveals, we cannot ever say that God hides the truth from us. Or does not show us where to go. Second Peter 1.21 reminds us that all of the Old Testament came to us through the work of the Spirit. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And those who wrote the words of the New Testament were guided into all truth by the Spirit. And this is why we can claim that all Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the Spirit not only reveals the reality of God to us from the pages of Scripture, but He also makes Himself visible, literally, to humans from time to time. One good example of that is when He descended on Jesus as a dove. And even today, sometimes He does work miracles that point to the power and presence of God. But as impressive as these things are, His guiding influence on our lives is far more constant than just miracles and wonders. Romans 8 tells us this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So I want to draw your attention to the underlying parts here. Every single Christian receives the Holy Spirit into their hearts at the very moment that they accept Jesus as Lord. And from that very moment on, the Spirit begins to lead them constantly, It's a continuous thing. The Holy Spirit doesn't quickly suggest that you don't drink 42 beers right now and then rush off somewhere to the North Pole to check on somebody else there for a few days. No. He's always present, always pointing the way, explaining, suggesting, and encouraging. If we listen. We may get distracted or seduced by our own desires, but that never means that the road that we are on lacks constant signposts or that we have a personalized GPS to guide us to our destination. The Spirit is our constant revelation. If it is true that the Spirit unites, we cannot ever say that we are alone. A little further on in the passage that we read earlier from Acts 2, the Apostle Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. And his prophecy is the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. All flesh. Sons, daughters, young men, old men, men servants, maid servants, all will feel and manifest the Spirit's influence on their lives. And it's clear that the intention was to create a community of believers. It wasn't like the Old Testament where the Spirit's manifestations were usually limited to a single individual like Ezekiel or Isaiah. And this community picture is confirmed as we read further on in the chapter. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, if it's true then, it's true now. We aren't in this building today with all of these people just by chance. We are here because of the Holy Spirit. He put us all here. He binds us together with common cause as a sign of the unity that He enjoys with the Father and the Son. 
And it's a sign that the world is intended to see. We are all different in here, but we all fit together because the Holy Spirit helps us to be so by giving us each specific gifts that contribute to the whole and draw us together. In a world where so many people feel lost and alone, we can certainly thank Him for that. But we are not behind a wall. Our community is supposed to be open. It is meant to call out to everyone, Come, join us. You too can be blessed sons and daughters of the living God. There is a significant caution, though. Although the Holy Spirit certainly empowers and reveals, purifies and unites believers, we must never forget that our life together isn't intended to be a one-sided affair. We must cooperate intimately with Him if we expect to see the full power of His presence in our lives. Many examples in both the Old and New Testament show that the Holy Spirit will give or withdraw blessing according to whether or not He is pleased by the situation that He sees. I think the most positive example of this is Jesus Himself, who was completely without sin. And consequently, we read in Scripture that the Holy Spirit remained on Him, and it was given to Him without measure. On the other hand, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came mightily upon Samson several times, but ultimately left him when he persisted in sin. And similarly, when Saul persisted in disobedience, the Holy Spirit departed from him. The New Testament shows that the Holy Spirit can be grieved and therefore cease to bring blessing. Stephen rebuked the Jewish leaders saying, You always resist the Holy Spirit. And Paul warns the Ephesian Christians, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And he exhorts the Thessalonian church, Do not quench the Spirit. In a similar vein, Paul gives serious warning to Christians not to defile their bodies by joining them to a prostitute because the Holy Spirit lives in their bodies. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you that you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Even more serious than grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit is a deeper more hardened disobedience to him that brings strong judgment. When Peter rebuked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the laws? The land? What happened? Ananias fell down dead. And similarly, when Peter said to Ananias' wife, Sapphira, how is it that you agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Well, she died as well. And finally, there is the worst level of offense against the Holy Spirit. This kind of offense is even more serious than grieving Him or acting with a hardened disobedience to Him that brings discipline or judgment. It is possible to so offend the Holy Spirit that His convicting work will not be brought to bear again in a person's life. That is awful. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Matthew 12. All of these passages show that we must be very careful not to grieve or offend the Holy Spirit. He will not force himself upon us against our wills. But if we resist and quench and oppose him, then his empowering will depart and he will take away the blessing of God from our lives. And that's a most sobering possibility. We're nearly at the end now. I hope that after all we have covered today, this Pentecost Sunday, that we will leave here not merely knowing that it is good to celebrate this most momentous day when we celebrate how we were gifted with the Holy Spirit, but it is far better to celebrate every day by thinking and living and walking and rejoicing and yes, sometimes too grieving in the Holy Spirit. God did not mean for us to be alone. And finally, I want to be very, very clear that despite me spending a lot of time today talking about Jewish custom and beliefs and how they dovetail with the new covenant, that exactly what it is. A completely new and different covenant with God. We must not be adding Jewish ritual and law-bound baggage into our Christian lives. The Holy Spirit lives in us to set us free from all of that. Respect that and live as a New Testament believer. There is no need to combine the old and the new. Understanding the old is helpful, yes, but we do not wish to become something that is neither fish nor fowl nor good red meat. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot begin to thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That a fundamental part of you has literally come to share our lives every day in everything that we do. What an enormous privilege. What an amazing possibility. Lord, I pray that as we go forward from this day, that we would be awake to your spirit. That we would use all our power to cooperate with him. Not for our own sake, but for your glory and the growth of your kingdom here on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.